Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health, as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Thomas Seyfried, a trailblazer in the arena of conquering cancer. In 2012, Dr. Seyfried published his groundbreaking book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, on the origin, management, and prevention of cancer, which provided extensive information showing that cancer can be best defined as a mitochondrial metabolic disease rather than a genetic disease. Dr. Seyfried, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation as Cancer has truly been an area that I've invested a lot of time and research in, as I was just saying, from my mom's own journey. And I'm really looking forward to sharing your incredible research with my listeners, as well as perhaps selfishly getting some of my own questions answered directly from the source. Um, Thank you, Jacqueline. It's a real pleasure to be here. Let's dive right in. There is so much to cover, but let's start with the very basics. You were on the team of researchers that discovered a combination of therapies that destroys the two major cells found in glioblastoma, which we know is one of the deadliest forms of cancer a person can have. Can you elaborate on what those findings were? I think that the person that we're working with and the other folks, um, it's not clear whether the tumor is completely gone or whether it's forced into an indolent state. Um, our, our one paper that we did in great detail, Pablo Kelly from Devon, England. Um, Pablo is now nine years out from his diagnosis um, when he contacted me in 2014. Um, you know, he, he still has the he still has his tumor. It's not gone, uh, but it's indolent, and um, which which allows him to get married and have children and and uh, have an improved quality of life, uh, considering that most folks with that kind of tumor would have been long gone um, by, by this time. Um, the two major cells in a glioblastoma are the um, cancer stem cells, which rapidly divide, and these so-called mesenchymal um, kinds of cells, which are less uh, they're more amorphous. Um, they come from the microglia. They're actually neoplastic parts of the neoplastic stem cells that are uh, uh, correction microglia in the brain. So they're the highly invasive ones. Um, and the brain tumors, that's why they used to call it glioblastoma multiforme, which was many different forms of cells. You, you have a real mess. You have inflammation. You have abnormal blood vessels. You have different kinds of neoplastic cells that are growing at different rates, some more invasive than others. Um, they use blood vessels to move through the brain. You can never surgically completely remove a glioblastoma. There's always partial remains, and the partial remain is what comes back and mostly kills the patients together with the radiation that they use to manage it. Um, but we know from... Um, fundamental biochemistry that all the cells uh, in the GBM, the glioblastoma, are all fermenters. That means they they uh, obtain energy without oxygen, and that's called fermentation. 
And um, cancer cells, whether it's a glioblastoma, lung, colon, breast, they're all similar. They all ferment. Um, and they only can ferment two major fuels, which is the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine. So, so the strategy for managing most uh, cancers is simply uh, remove those two fermentable fuels while transitioning the whole body over to ketone bodies, which cannot be used as a fuel for cancer. So for glioblastoma, yeah, it, 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 it can... It can certainly reduce the, the, how aggressive the tumor is. Whether it can cure the tumor remains to be determined um, because we just haven't had uh, long enough a time to evaluate these so-called long-term survivors. So I don't know. Um, you know, if Pablo Kelly dies at 95 years of age, he's young. He's like 30 or something now, 30, 32, 33. Um, if he dies at 95 days of age, and his tumor never, never killed him. Then we can say that that uh, he was managed. But you know, uh, I don't think I'll be around when Pablo, if Pablo can live to be ninety five years of age. You never know, Doctor Seyfried. I agree with that, and I think too. I like to use the term remission, right, rather than cure, because I think due to the cancer stem cells, you can never quite say if someone's cancer is cured, right? But we do know that folks can live indefinitely long lives with tumors again, as long as they don't metastasize and grow. Yeah, I think that's, we call it management. I mean, can you exactly. keep it under control? Uh, remission is hard because sometimes it goes away and you say, oh, it looks like I'm cancer-free, um, which, which is another yes. I mean, and then it comes back and say, what happened? Um, right. But man we're managing it. We're effectively managing. The, the key is, is um, uh, improved progression-free. So overall survival is the ultimate uh, test to whether or not uh, you have a therapy that's successful. I mean, we have massive evidence in the literature to show people uh, what we call survival curves for metastatic cancers, whether it's breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. I mean, we have survival curves, and they usually say stage four, this is like a turbo cancer. I mean, these cancers are pretty aggressive and, you know, with metastatic lung cancer, if you can live uh, more than two years, you're doing really, really well. Uh, same with glioblastoma. So we have plenty of historic evidence to say that, you know, if you have a therapy that, well, now the average survival time goes from two years to five years, then that it represents a massive uh, improvement in the overall outcome of patients with these kinds of cancers. And I think metabolic therapy uh, will be able to do that. Absolutely. And I love that you touched on that because that's something I encourage patients to ask their oncologists, right? What is the overall survival of this therapy, not the progression-free survival? Because they are two very different things. But going back to the fuel sources. So as you've highlighted in your research, we know that cancer cells feed on fermentable fuels like glucose and glutamine. But for example, I read a PubMed study that showed how cancer cells can literally redirect metabolic pathways to meet energy demands through the regulation of even fatty acid metabolism, and that in the absence of glucose, cancer cells can get fuel from non-glucose sources, like the breakdown of fats or proteins. My question to you is, how do you reconcile that? Now, they're wrong. It's, it, we tested it all. Okay, We did the experiments ourselves. We can't find any tumors. The fatty acids can't be used. Um, uh, uh, directly as a fuel source. Um, we tested every amino acid. We, we tested every single amino acid, interrogated tumor cells to find out what they can and cannot use as a fuel. 
So what we do is we grow the cells in the complete absence of any fuel source, just salts, and they all die, all right? There's not a single molecule in a salt solution that can keep these cells alive. Then we add fats, sugar, and different amino acids back to this salt solution. And we find out what these cells, and all of a sudden you see them perk up and they start to survive. And you find out that the only fuel that's giving them the opportunity to survive is the amino acid glutamine and the sugar glucose. And those are the fuels that, so you, they cannot burn fatty acids. And most of the studies that are done to say this, the cells burn fatty acids, they're in the presence of glucose and glutamine. So you take away glucose and glutamine, fats by themselves or ketone bodies by themselves cannot replace glucose and glutamine. Now, there's a very interesting fact that if you give fatty acids to some people, it looks like their tumors may grow faster. Why is that? Because fatty acids uncouple mitochondria, forcing the cell to use more fermentation, which is more glucose and glutamine. So the fatty acids themselves are not a direct fuel source, but they can facilitate fermentation using glucose and glutamine indirectly, giving the misinformation to people that the tumor cells are using fatty acids. So once you, yeah, so I mean, you have to do the experiments and you have to be able to do this. Just, I know these people, they, they write all this stuff. They, they pulled it. Oh yeah. Tumor cells can use it. Did you do the, I did the experiments. Okay. So I can tell you with no degree of uncertainty that these, and how do we know that? Because the mitochondria of every major cancer has, is defective in structure and number and function. You can't burn fatty acids unless you have healthy mitochondria. And the only cells that have healthy mitochondria are non-tumorgenic cells. Normal cells can burn fatty acids and ketone bodies. Tumor cells cannot. So the solution to the cancer problem is simply restricting the fermentable fuels and transitioning the body over to ketone bodies and fatty acids because the cancer cells can't use them. So, uh, uh, and they don't look at the uh, ultrastructure of the, all of the cancers that I've looked at. You know, you just go to the scientific literature. Yeah, most people do not have access to the scientific literature like I have. And I looked, spent years looking for any kind of a tumor cell that has a normal content and composition of mitochondria that would allow that cell to burn fatty acids or ketone bodies, and I cannot find any. And we are still on the quest. And I'll, I'll, I'll be very excited if someone can show me a tumor cell that can live without glucose and glutamine and in the presence of fatty acids and ketone bodies, because my hat would be off to them, and it would be something they found that I haven't been able to find in 30 years. Well, if I ever come across one, I'll, I'll let you know. There's so much literature. There are so many studies out there, right? And it's so challenging to parse through what is yeah. accurate and what is not. I think the one I read essentially was saying that cancer cells depend on fatty acids to produce ATP through like fatty acid oxidation no. Uh, no, instead of instead of glycolysis yeah again yeah, no, so much no. so well, much the, fa the fatty that. acids are enhancing glycolysis no no they can't uh the, you look at their experimental design and the other thing that they all many not all many of them do is they look at oxygen consumption and they say oh i gave fatty acids oxygen consumption went up that means uh, they're using making energy through oxfos uh, wrong the oxygen consumption in cancer cells not used for atp synthesis it's used for the production of ros ros which are carcinogenic and mutagenic so uh, so clearly yeah i agree uh, jacqueline you have you have no idea how confused the scientists are in the field it's not it's not just the layperson 
It's not just you guys. The very folks that are doing many of these research experiments at the top medical schools and scientific are themselves confused. They choose not to explore the facts of the of the nature. I don't. I, 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 it has to do with uh, um, ideological dogma, thinking cancer is a genetic disease. God forbid that we change the idea that cancer is not a genetic disease. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. Yeah, it is frustrating for us because we publish all these papers, and a lot of times they're completely ignored. They don't look back. Uh, you have to understand evolutionary biology. Uh, structure determines function, a foundational principle in evolutionary biology. How is it possible that any internal structure of the cell could be so dis, uh, dis, dysfunctional and yet produce normal ATP? That doesn't happen. So you have to ignore a lot of facts of evolutionary biology to support the idea that tumor cells can burn fatty acids in ketone bodies. And we tested it all. We can't, we can't support that. Um, the poor lay for, person really doesn't, he, they're relying on, on the scientists and physicians to provide them with accurate information. And right. the problem that I'm running into is the sci majority of scientists and physicians in the field are also confused. And they publish papers in top scientific journals that are erroneous because we have tested these, these things. And they use uh, instrumentation, you know, uh, uh, respiratory meters and you know, seahorse design things to measure oxygen consumption and, and acidification. All of these are indirect measures. They're not direct measures. We measure directly the stuff. It's not easy to do. It's time consuming. But we want to get to the truth. And the truth is tumor cells are dependent on fermentation. They live without oxygen. They live without oxygen. If you can live without oxygen, there's only two fuels that can drive that kind of a thing uh, that are available in the human body. And that's the glucose and the glutamine. So uh, once you realize that, um, now you have a, a clear path for the resolution and management of cancer. And, th and the question that you have to ask yourself is why, why is this not being done? And the answer is, I would say the vast majority of oncologists that are treating cancer patients have no clue about what I just said. Um, they are actually thinking glucose has no relevance to cancer patients. Eat whatever you want to eat, they say. This is scary. This is very, very scary. And uh, the outcome is over 1,600 people a day dying from cancer, being brutalized by a system where the folks that are supposed to take care of you have very little knowledge about the biology of the disease they're working on. And the guys at the top medical schools doing the research are using misinformation from, from studies that are mostly indirect. So you put this together and you have a problem. And the problem is dead people that are being brutalized by a system. And it's the, that's one of the greatest tragedies. And it will become recognized as one of the singular greatest tragedies of our, of our humankind. Yeah, it, it truly is. And I think the irony, too, is that, I mean, we share the same thoughts on this, right? But we are investing billions of dollars. The cancer industry is the most profitable sector of the healthcare industry in America. And we use this term, right, of precision medicine, where we're targeting all of these different mutations. And it's essentially like playing whack-a-mole because the mm -hmm. cancer is going to continue to develop mutations based on all of the conventional therapies it's undergoing. And we're not, yeah. again, addressing the root cause or the terrain of the body. Yeah, but that's based on the on the on the on the theory on which the the the, the therapies are based. The right. somatic mutation theory is the dominant theory for the origin of cancer. Mutations in genes cause cells to have dysregulated growth. And if you go to the National Cancer, our government, National Science, National Institutes of Health, 
The National Cancer Institute is part of the National Institute of Health. It's a big branch, the National uh, NCI, National Cancer Institute. It says right on their webpage, cancer is a genetic disease. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, um, so all, majority of grants uh, issued by the uh, NCI uh, to major hospitals and research centers are are are, are on a, a, a theory that's incorrect. It's not correct. Cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease driven by fermentation metabolism, and God forbid that we change our ideological dogma to re- 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 redefine what the nature of the disease is because the solution to the problem becomes very much less complicated and far less costly. And, um, and that, that's not, that ain't something people want to hear. And I think the irony too, at least this has been my experience, is that if you put a patient on, again, a conventional therapy, let's say it's an aromatase inhibitor for breast cancer, that cancer is going to ultimately develop a mutation, whether that's an ESR1. Well, it, doesn't, or, it, it, it doesn't develop, it, yeah, it always develops new mutations that are largely irrelevant. The, the tumor cell can't live without glucose and glutamine. So does an aromatase inhibitor block, successfully block the availability of glucose and glutamine to the tumor? And the answer is no. Uh, what are we using? Toxic chemical, poisonous chemicals. Now, let me say that many of these toxic uh, chemicals that we use uh, uh, with metabolic therapy, we could still use them, but at very low dosages where toxicity and um, adverse effects would be significantly reduced. Also, precision medicine. Um, if you take a very aggressive tumor with many different kinds of cells and a lot of inflammation and all this kind of stuff, and then you shrink down that tumor to a very small uh, indolent kind of growth. It's possible that all of the cells remaining in that tumor may express a common marker that a precision medicine could then come in and finish it off. But you would, you, uh, the outcome would not be the same if you were to try to do that when the tumor was at its most aggressive uh, and, and um, um, most inflamed state. So you have to use a graded approach to managing cancer. First step is you have to reduce the systemic inflammation, the vasculature of the tumor. You have to restrict its availability to get glucose and glutamine. It becomes indolent. Uh, most of the tumor cells will die. And then you could either come in with a surgical procedure, a radiation procedure, or even a precision medicine to finish off the survivors. But, but that's the strategy you would use if you understood that the cancer is a, driven by a, a, as a mitochondrial metabolic disease and not a genetic disease. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to throw out all the tools that we have presently. We just have to know how to use them in a different way. To that point, though, Dr. Seyfried, are there specific types of cancers that are more responsive to a ketogenic diet? So in the case of estrogen-dependent cancers, right, like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, these rely on estrogen to develop and grow. So it's not just a matter of restricting the glucose and glutamine, although that's critical, right? But isn't it also about ensuring that the hormone estrogen itself isn't fueling that cancer? It can't. It doesn't do it. It can't be. The tumor cells don't eat estrogen. Okay. Uh, they, so even if you, if you take away the glucose and glutamine, the cell can't divide. It needs Everything comes back to energy. Where does the cell get the energy to divide, whether estrogen is present or not, whether any of the hormones are present or not? 
The tumor cells do not eat the hormones for energy. They get energy from glucose and glutamine. That drives the dysregulated growth. We have not yet found any cancer, whether it's triple negative, ER positive, this or that, that it does not use glucose and glutamine. So all that stuff becomes irrelevant, okay? Without glucose and glutamine, the tumor cell cannot survive, regardless of what the hormones. They can't eat hormones. They eat glucose and glutamine. Remember, energy is necessary for cell division. Without energy, cells cannot divide, regardless of what kind of tumor they have. They need energy. The cells live without oxygen. The cells can live without oxygen. What are the fuels that allow them to divide in the absence of oxygen, regardless of all other issues? And that, that is glucose and glutamine. So when you can go, you, I can go through the same thing for a lung cancer and the different kinds of lung cancers and the different kinds of breast cancers, the colon cancers, the brain cancers. They're all based on a fermentation metabolism. And that's what people seem to have difficulty understanding. And prostate cancer is the same thing. They use, I thought there's a big paper on this, right? They're using all these hormonal therapies. The cells are fermenters. Once you know that they can't live without energy, what are they getting their energy from? All right? Yeah, hormones can facilitate availability of using glucose and glutamine. But if you take away glucose and glutamine, hormones are irrelevant. So, so um, everything comes back to the, how the cell gets energy to divide. And that's completely independent of what kind of gene mutations they have or anything. Because when you eliminate the tumor by taking away their energy, what difference does it make what kind of mutations they have? Well, the cells are dead. So uh, um, it, it comes back to that. And I think that's the key that people need to understand. And that's based on the idea that cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease. Once you realize that, it's energy, 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 energy. All other issues become secondary. I'd like to shift gears slightly and, and talk about the ketogenic diet. So on the topic of studies, right, I'm sure you've seen this. I, I read this a few weeks ago, a recent study that showed a keto diet in mice slowed the growth of cancer cells, but it also promoted cachexia. Um, and for listeners, that's like the wasting that's associated with late stage cancer. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, we've done hundreds of these kinds of diets and published many, many papers. And when you don't do the study correctly, uh, you get these kinds of results that you just mentioned. You know, um, we put each mouse in a cage by itself, measuring daily what it's drinking and eating. These other studies don't do that. They just throw mice in a cage and see what happens. You know, um, is our, and also the different composition of the diet is extremely important. Uh, what, what the nutritional value you have to, is, are they eating too much? What's the nutritional composition of them? How do the mice respond to that? You have to do a very serious a, a, a groundwork before you can start treating uh, tumors with ketogenic diets. And then what we found uh, as we did water-only fasting, we did ketogenic diets, we did all these things. For decades, we were doing this kind of stuff. I'm working with Dr. Purna Mukherjee. She's the best in the world at, at working on the. Every time we see these kinds of papers published by other groups, it was like the first time they've ever done anything. They buy the mice from a, uh, they don't breed their own mice in-house. They just buy mice, treat them with something, and then come out with these profound statements. Uh, the mice are usually nutritionally imbalanced. Uh, the tumors there and the, the mice and the tumors are genetic, some sort of weird genetically engineered things. They're not natural. So people have to realize, give me evidence with natural forming tumors using 
nutritionally balanced diets in the right proportions and look at each mouse as a separate patient, an individual, then you begin to see a lot of people can't do this because they're not familiar with it. It's, these are very costly experiments. I should, I should mention that. So it's like any, it's almost like a clinical trial for mice to do it the right way. You have to really be careful with everything you do. Otherwise, you get really messed up results. A lot of these things are partially correct, but they're not completely correct. So uh, we, we know that. And the other thing about diets, you know, that's why we developed the glucose ketone index calculator, because it cuts across whatever kind of a diet. It doesn't make any difference if you're eating a Mediterranean diet, a ketogenic diet, any kind of a diet. As long as you can keep your blood sugar low and your ketones elevated, you're going to have a chance to manage that cancer. And then we bring in repurposed drugs and other procedures like hyperbaric oxygen, a variety of these other things that work synergistically together. So it's a whole package deal. And if you don't have all the components of the package, you're, 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 it's going to be a chance that you don't get the kind of results or you make, mis you make misstatements about things that weren't designed properly. And I know that you've also seen people who ate across the spectrum, right, from carnivores to vegetarians, be able to get into that therapeutic ketosis state. We have extremes in our society, right? Neither of which, in my opinion, are healthy. But I am curious, have you seen it necessarily make a difference if someone gets into that therapeutic state from a ketotarian, more plant-based approach mm -hmm. than versus a more carnivore-type approach? Well, I think it's it's a good question. I, I, I think everybody, regardless of what diet they prefer, whatever, whatever culture they're in, religion they're in, uh, we can we can get into a, a, a low GKI of 2.0 or below, but it's it's harder for some folks than it is for other folks. Um, it's harder to do it on a vegan diet. Not to say a vegan can't get into the low GKI value necessary to kill and manage the cancer. We're omnivores, basically. We, humans can eat anything that all walks, cr uh, crawls, flies, swims. You know, we can we can eat just about everything. Um, but the question is, is that we evolved, we were always in a ketotic state because uh, carbohydrates, highly processed, uh, high glycemic carbs were not part of our diet in our um, ten, thousands of years of existence on the planet. So uh, um, we, we, we were ideally geared uh, to being in a ketotic state. And those ketotic states make cancer extremely difficult uh, to initiate in the first place. Um, and also uh, to manage it, once you're in the ketotic state, it's easier to manage the cancer. Um, but unfortunately, most folks don't know about that. Uh, and rarely do we see um, people being treated for cancer that are in these ketotic states. They, they're usually encouraged to eat high-carbohydrate foods, which is like totally counterproductive to what you need to do. Right. And for someone whose GKI jumps up each time they consume vegetables, right? And again, everyone should abide by a test and assess protocol, but how do you balance the need to stay in that therapeutic state while also ensuring that the patient is getting those important phytonutrients that we know plant foods contain? Well, I, I think it's one of, of, of amounts. You don't need a lot. I mean, there's the amounts of, of, of nutrients in a small amount of plant material is just more than enough sometimes to, uh, to provide the necessary vitamins and minerals. Uh, so, and, you know, with, with various meats, um, you know, you, you, people, people need to exp uh, uh, use their own body as a, uh, uh, as a test 
a test tool, yeah. a test situation, because it can vary from one person to the next. So there's no like one shoe would fit all. The, as we said, whatever you need to do to get into uh, a GKI of 2.0 or below, you're going to just have to know how to bite the bullet to get into that zone. As I said, when you're trying to manage cancer, a lot of this falls on your shoulders as the patient. We've provided guidelines to say that if you're in this zone of 2.0 or below, your tumors are your tumor cells are suffering. They're not they're not able to grow as robustly as they would if if they were if they had access um, to these fuels. Now, of course, diet cannot target effectively glutamine because glutamine is an abundant amino acid. It's essential for our immune system, our gut, our urea cycle. I mean, we have uh, glutamine is a, a very important uh, amino acid. There's, uh, yeah, yeah, 21 day water only fasting can can lower your blood glutamine levels along with your glucose levels. But this is very hard for a lot of people to do. So we have found different drugs that we use sparingly in the right uh, dosage timing and scheduling that work together with the low GKI to really hammer these tumor cells. So uh, again, these are diet drug cocktails that ne you need to know how to use these drugs. This is where our cutting edge research is right now, is trying to find the most ideal dosage timing and scheduling of diets and, and drug repurposed drugs and procedures like hyperbaric oxygen, all of which come together in a package to manage the yeah. cancer. And again, a lot of this falls on the shoulders of the patient. They must be an active participant in the management of their cancer. They just cannot turn their soul over to a group of folks that have no clue as to what we're talking about. So if people want to manage their cancer, they need to know about metabolic therapy. They need to know what their body is capable of. The, the, other, the other issue, of course, is that when the, diagnose, when the cancer is first diagnosed, most patients, not all, of course, are in pretty good shape. I mean, they, uh, I wouldn't say they're in good shape. They're metabolically out of balance for sure. But, but, they're, but they're not skeletons. They're, they're, they're not on death's doorstep uh, for the most part. So the human body has a tremendous healing power. And uh, when, when uh, used in the right way at, at the beginning of this uh, this journey to manage the disease, your body has tremendous power and flexibility. It has far less power and flexibility if you have been brutalized uh, by treatments that poison and, and, and diminish the health capabilities of our normal cells. Then it becomes much, much more difficult for meta metabolic therapy to have the kind of outcome that one would be, uh, expect if we were to uh, do this as a, first, as a first approach to managing cancer. Unfortunately, most patients don't actually consider implementing this type of metabolic therapy, right, until they've already been through all the conventional therapies and they're essentially yeah. left with no other options, right? But again, yeah. I think there's still hope that, you know, the body can heal itself. It's just a matter of getting into the proper state. Back to the point of, of water fasting, though, I'm a huge proponent of water fasting. There's a clinic in California that actively works with cancer patients to go through these 30, 40 day water mm. fasting protocols, which I know obviously not every patient is willing to do, but Dr. Thomas Lodi, who I believe you're acquainted with, advocates for a two to three day water fast to help someone quickly get into therapeutic ketosis. But I think his, or rather what he advocates in terms of keto diet is six weeks strict keto, followed by 12 weeks of a regular healthy Mediterranean diet, 
that you may or may not be within that, you know, two or lower GKI state and then back again. What are your thoughts on that on again, off again protocol? Yeah, well, I think that's that certainly would be effective. There's no question about it. Um, the, the issue, of course, most people want to do uh, a cancer management um, um, strategy that is the least hard or painful to <laughs> difficult, right? I mean, most people say, "Can can I can I do that? Uh, is there a better way? Is there something easier I can do?" And what we what we think. Um, is uh, at least we see it's easier for people to uh, go into therapeutic ketosis while doing a, a very low carbohydrate diet for about a week. Um, it's it's hard to jump cold turkey into water only fasting, um, even if you do it for two days. Uh, three days becomes really, and again, how old you are, the difficulty is is younger people can do this uh, easier than older folks. Where Older folks are more addicted to glucose over a longer period of time, whereas it's like anything. Young people can always be a little bit more um, better at this than the old guys. Um, but, you know, if I, if I were to have cancer, uh, uh, having tried water-only fasting cold turkey, it's very uncomfortable, uh, not easy to do. You're, you're you're always thinking about food, and and you, you, so what, what we but what what does work for most people, for many people, I should say, is that you go on a, a zero carb diet uh, for about a week, uh, with a carb very low glycemic carbohydrates or or no carbohydrates or extremely low carbohydrates. Your body starts to get into ketosis gradually without without too much radical change. Then after about 10 days to 14 days of this uh, zero or very low carbohydrate diet, you'll see your glucose go down, your ketones will go up. You're getting now into the a, a gradual state of ketosis without too much uh, difficulty. I mean, yes, it is. Oh, people will start craving carbs um, because they're addicted to them. Uh, but again, you're trying to lower the addiction. And, and it starts to go away with about 10 or 14 days, depending on how old you are. Younger people seem to get over it more than your older people may have to go a little bit longer, which is, you know, not, not the most comfortable thing. But it's, you know, you're working toward a goal. And then you can jump into water only fasting because the drop, the change is not so dramatic. Your body has already given you an opportunity to adjust and get into some acclimated state. Uh, as opposed to going cold turkey. And then you say, whoa, this isn't so bad. Now I, 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 I'm doing water. Then you'll see your GKI stabilize. It's when the patient is in that, in that state, when their uh, blood work starts looking really, really good. Triglycerides are down. HDL is up. Uh, HDL, LDL is down. Um, their overall C-reactive protein, all the different biomarkers start taking on a very healthy, healthy look. It's then when we bring in the, the drugs and the procedures, uh, repurpose drugs to target the glutamine uh, more effectively. Hyperbaric oxygen will blast the hell out of these tumor cells once you're in a state of ketosis because it, it kills them by oxidative stress, same way radiation does, but it, it, it doesn't harm your normal cells. So it's a very, very uh, good way to uh, further uh, um, put this on. Um, we're looking into hypothermia as, a, as an add-on. We're, we're building novel, completely novel uh, non-toxic uh, approaches for managing cancer. But the patient must be an active participant 
in, in this. The patient must know what they're doing and why they're doing, and they have little meters to read to know whether they're in. They have blood work. Their, um, yeah. their physician can say, wow, your blood work is beautiful compared to the way it was, and now we're going to slowly degrade your tumor in, in a way. Um, it could take six or eight months, but 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 the bottom line is you take a, a, a strategy of chemotherapy or radiation, it could take you just as long, but then you come out of it, you know, all beat up and 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 injured from the toxic treatment. So this is just the opposite. We we bring the patient from a state of unhealth to a gradual state of health uh, while gradually eliminating the tumor cells. And also often goes away as type 2 diabetes goes away, high, pl- high blood pressure goes away, hypertension goes away. All of these different collateral or uh, confounding variables that contribute to a state of unhealth all, all gradually uh, disappear uh, along with the tumor cells. So it's a kind of a, a really interesting transition from one one state of unhealth to a state of health. And that's why we developed the press pulse therapeutic strategy to do that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'd also just like to emphasize for listeners out there that conventional doctors don't test for a majority of those biomarkers that you just mentioned, right? Like CRP, for example, which is why it's so important to either work with an integrative practitioner or even request from your conventional oncologist to include those biomarkers, again, to ensure that you're on the right path. Um, Because we certainly know that there are so many other things outside of tumor markers that can indicate how healthy your internal terrain is. And going back to the concept of glutamine and conventional cancer treatments, I know that one topic you've published a major paper on was around the subject of standard treatments like radiation, freeing up a massive amount of glucose and glutamine in the tumor microenvironment. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, that was that was uh, in specific relation to glioblastoma, uh, the brain the brain tumor. We published the first paper on that in in, in 2010 uh, in Lancet Oncology, which is a top uh, cancer journal in the field, um, and it was met with um, just coldness. It wasn't. Uh, I, I outlined the the clear mechanism. Uh, by which irradiating a person with a brain tumor uh, can can free up the two fuels that drive the dysregulated growth of the tumor cells. Um, the brain, you know, a glioblastoma is already has a lot of um, uh, acidification, inflammation, all kinds of a, a microenvironment that's highly acidified and inflamed, and um, that microenvironment. Uh, uh, creates and uh, create, frees up a large amount of, of glutamine. As neurons die, they release glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter uh, that we use for our thinking and all of a lot of our behaviors. Um, but it, when it's released in too high of a concentration, it it actually is cytotoxic. It kills neurons, and the glutamine is then taken. Uh, the glutamate is then taken up by tumor cells and used to make glutamine uh, and the glial cells. So it's almost like a feeding a feed forward mechanism um in the brain and then when you irradiate the poor patient uh blood sugar goes through the roof uh just from being irradiated and then because the brain gets hot and inflammation is bad they give the patient high dose uh, steroids dexamethasone uh, which further elevates blood sugar so this the strategy for managing the brain tumor is almost perfectly designed to kill the patient uh uh it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's immoral. It's it's like it's beyond it's beyond reasonable. 
when you know the, the biology uh, of the tumor, you understand the biochemistry and biology of the tissue, the standard of care treatment for glioblastoma is, is not only medieval, it's immoral. And uh, I, 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 it's almost malpractice. I mean, it's not like, I guess you can plead ignorance um, that uh, of someone who would be irradiating a, uh, someone with a brain tumor. So, well, I, I never knew that. Well, that's, is that negligence, ignorance? I don't know what it is. I mean, the science has been published. I mean, what, what part of the science do you, do you not believe? Because what you see is that you can't, when you look at survival curves for people with glioblastoma, it's almost perfectly replicable of every major hospital on the planet. Uh, the same death over the same time. You can't design uh, uh, experiments more perfect than the poor survival for glioblastoma. And why would the same survival be seen in all the major hospitals around the world that survival is so poor? Because the treatments they're using is killing the patients so perfectly. It's, you, it, it's just incredible. Um, and when you bring that to the attention of the folks that are doing this, they look at you like, like a deer in the head. They don't know what to say because they have been trained to do this. And in their mind, they're helping the patient. So this is incredible. It's almost like, I think I'm helping the patient. Well, maybe a little bit compared to doing nothing, which is, is called best supportive care. But in the long run, you may give that patient an extra month or two by irradiating them, but you certainly deprive them of any long-term survival for the most part. Every now and then you get some person who actually lives uh, uh, to five years after doing that to them. But clearly, uh, over 95% of the folks are dead before five years. And the older you are, the faster you die from this kind of treatment. So uh, why they do it over and over again? You, people need to ask that. I'm, I'm raising the question. Prove me wrong. I have all the evidence to say that I know what I'm talking about. Uh, and these folks continue to do that. It's a tra it's, I, can't, I, I don't know of any greater tragedy. And how fast they die. Look at John McCain of, of the senator. Uh, he went to Mayo Clinic, died real quick. Kennedy, uh, yeah. Teddy, Kennedy from Massachusetts here. Uh, President Biden's son. Uh, um, and I can go on and on and on and tell you how many people uh, are dead uh, from the standard of care for glioblastoma. And then we have Pablo Kelly, the guy who came to me and said, I don't want radiation, I don't want any, any of this. I just want to do metabolic therapy. And he's alive nine years. And they say, well, he's an anecdote. Uh, well, why don't we see how many other anecdotes are out there if they do what Pablo did? You know, I'm sure they're going to live a hell of a lot longer than what we're doing to these poor folks now. I, I feel yeah. terrible having to say that. But, no, you know, that's, those true. are the facts. Those are the facts. That's consistent across the board, even outside glioblastoma. If you look at cancer cases, most patients die not as a result of the cancer itself, but from the treatments, right? And again, sadly, oncologists have to adhere to this standard of care. This could be a whole other episode, but it saddens me when you approach an oncologist and ask for options like low-dose chemo, which I know you have a team um, of researchers in Istanbul that you're working with on that, but that's a therapy that has been proven to be effective and it's also not as toxic because the dosage is lower. The frequency is more often. I know there's a Dr. Ben Shu in Washington that has had a lot of success with stage four cancer patients leveraging low-dose chemo, yet your oncologist looks at you like you have three heads if you propose something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. As, as a matter of fact, low-dose chemo with uh, metabolic therapy or water-only fasting is really, really powerful. It's, it's really yeah. good. 
you know, and uh, but when you go to the oncologists and they think sugar has no relevance. In fact, there was a paper just published in the New York Times by um, a person named Chen saying that sugar has uh, is not a problem. What are these people living under a rock? I mean, this is nuts. Um, I, I don't understand how. And you go to the oncology department and, and they say sugar has nothing to do. Do they not read the scientific literature? Uh, patients need to be educated. They're the ones who should go in and tell the, tell the physician exactly what the, I want metabolic therapy. You tell them that I say, well, if I, I'm sorry, we don't do that. Well, we're going to go somewhere else where they do it. The problem exactly. is the clinical trial set up for this is not, is not made for metabolic therapy. Uh, we have to, we have to dump these, uh, absurd clinical trials where you have patients receive a placebo and the other person receives the drug and then you cross them over and do, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. Metabolic therapy is uh, a specific diet used with various repurposed drugs under, it's a whole package deal. Uh, you're trying to save people's lives here and give them an opportunity to live on the planet longer and, and forcing them into, well, I can't believe metabolic therapy until you do a clinical trial. The clinical trials are an impediment to the use of, of, of metabolic therapy. That the pe People have to demand, I don't want these crazy clinical trials. I want metabolic therapy. And we're going to find people who can learn how to do this. And the patient needs to be educated to do this as well. If they want to live, it's, it's the yep. choice. That's the mission of my platform. It's to encourage and empower readers to be advocates of their own health because you have to do your own research. It's your life. And going back to the off-label drugs, right, like fenbendazole and doxycycline, I've learned the efficacy of most of those drugs through Facebook groups of patients who are brilliant, right? And they do their own research yet when I approach, for example, conventional oncologists and I ask to apply it in my mom's situation, again, I'm, I'm just shot down. So my question to you is for a patient who sees the efficacy of these drugs, sees the relatively not toxic side effects as compared to some of these conventional therapies, how do they navigate incorporating these drugs if they're met with opposition from their oncologist or if one of those drugs like Doxy, for example, requires a prescription that they're not otherwise able to get. I know Fenben you could purchase online or on Amazon, but some of those other repurposed drugs like Jane McClellan's protocol, yeah. how does a patient go about trying to incorporate some of that? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. You know, it, you have a system that's supposed to help you um, and they're standing in the way of helping you which is the great tragedy. This is what I'm talking about. You know, because I have, I've known many, many people listen to what I say and they run down to their oncologist with, with a great deal of hope and enthusiasm only to get slapped in the face. Um, uh, it's, it's a tragedy. How these, and again, it's the standard of care, it's the training um, in the medical schools. The folks aren't trained to understand evolutionary biology. They're not trained to understand the biology of the disease they're working on. So they know how to use radiation without having smoke come out of your ears if you're doing brain cancer or some other, some other uh, form or poison you to the point where you're, you're trying to kill the cancer before they kill the patient. I mean, this is nuts. Um, but this is what they're trained to do and they think they're doing a good job. And let's be honest, people sometimes say, um, well, look at all the millions of cancer survivors that we have uh, that have survived uh, standards of care. And, and the answer is that's true. But m most of those people play, pay a very significant price 
uh, to have that extra time on the planet. They are now confronted with all kinds of new metabol- uh, uh, medical maladies uh, that they didn't have before uh, they were diagnosed uh, with, with cancer. So you have neuropsychiatric problems, digestive problems, hormonal problems, growth of bone problems, density problems. You have all of these health issues uh, because you were poisoned and irradiated to, to manage your cancer. You know, metabolic therapy uh, uh, eliminates the majority of those problems. In fact, there's very, very few people uh, um, uh, have any issues once you, you will often get super healthy after doing metabolic therapy. You know, um, you know, we don't, I, I don't know anybody who died faster doing metabolic therapy. We, we have, uh, it's not, not reported, not known anywhere, except we have hyperprogressive disease for lung cancer and a number of other cancers where some of the treatments kill you far faster than the cancer will kill you. So, I mean, when you look at the current state of cancer management in the world today, it's an abomination. It's an absolute abomination. And uh, it's medieval and it's not in, in, ineffective for a large number of people. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things that has to change. If people are comfortable with the status quo, then we nothing we can do about it. Low in toxicity and high in efficacy, right? Those are the two things we want. Conventional therapies can't kill cancer stem cells, but metabolic therapies can, which is, again, Yeah, I, I think we can, yeah, we can, especially when we use the right repurposed drugs, uh, when we use the right combinations, doses, timing, and scheduling. That's where the future is. We're doing that right yeah. now. And um, uh, most of our funding comes from um, philanthropy and private foundations. So uh, that keeps us going. Uh, yeah, we're going to achieve this, uh, but we're, and we're writing a, a complete, uh, very detailed treatment protocol for glioblastoma right now that we hope to publish. Um, so we're we're moving forward with this because the people want it. The, the the folks that have cancer want this, and and once you have it all outlined and 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 clearly described, uh, both on on the practical aspect and on the scientific basis for it, it'll ha- it'll happen. It's just a matter of time. Um, and the standard of care will change. It'll become a blend at first uh, between metabolic therapy and, and conventional standards of care, eventually moving at some point over to complete metabolic therapy where things we're using today on a, on a large-scale basis may be used in a very minor way. The incredible work that you're doing will only help to accelerate that process, and I'm very excited to see that paper once it's published. But going back to the use of off-label drugs, Based on your research, for a patient with stage four cancer, what are your top three complementary therapies that you would incorporate? And we know that they all work synergistically with being in that therapeutic state. So you mentioned hyperbaric oxygen. High-dose IVC, I heard, is also wonderful when someone's in that therapeutic state. What are your top three? Well, I I think um, we have to assess the individual at first to see what, what state they're in. Um, and based on that, again, you start you start with um, bringing the patient from a state of unwellness, uh, abnormal blood work into some state of normal blood work. Then, then um, you know, what are the off-label drugs? Well, as you've already mentioned, fenbendazole, uh, embendazole, and it's an interesting thing. Embendazole and fenbendazole are, are, are structurally very similar. Uh, we we have a paper now that we've we've just put for a high grade gli, uh, glioma in children, showing for the first time that embendazole, which is an anti parasite medication, is um, uh, can can target glucose and glutamine. So uh, it's added on to the diet and it makes it it work even better. 
So, and it's a pretty innocuous drug. I mean, millions of people take embendazole in relatively high concentrations to manage parasites. Um, but when you use it with the, with the correct diet and parasites, you know, there's another interesting thing. Many people think a cancer is paras- parasite. Cancer is not a parasite. Parasite's a different organism altogether. But cancer cells and parasites are both fermenters in certain conditions. So drugs that kill parasites can also kill tumor cells. So, uh, um, so you, you have to know uh, the biology. You have to know the evolutionary biology of what you're dealing with to really understand how to manage the disease. Um, but you're right. There, there are, we, there, we know there are a large number of relatively cheap uh, drugs uh, that could have massive power uh, in killing cancer cells when used under the right under the right context, like the Vimistat, which is a drug that was a bust for pancreatic cancer in the human clinic. Uh, we used it on the pediatric uh, brain tumor. It, again, it, it didn't do anything by itself, but when you put it together with a restricted ketogenic diet, my God, the, the drug was unbelievable. So yeah. I, I think uh, the pharmaceutical companies are sitting on a goldmine of drugs uh, that have been can because they were too toxic and and not effective. And I, I think when you use them at different concentrations under different conditions, they may be very, very powerful. So they have to know that. Um, uh, otherwise, we just keep, you know, doing these half, half effective treatments and not really having the full therapeutic benefit. So what are the repurposed drugs? Well, as I said, you have these parasite drugs. Um, you have different conditions uh, that the body you're going through a a, a, a train of, of things as you're in the as you're in this state and um, we're going to find a lot more glutamine targeting drugs like 60oxy nor oxyleucine which is don is the most powerful drug that we have found but it's not available for the cancer patient even though we tested it other humans tested a little kids in the past it was never approved by the food and Dr- drug administration so we have a drug sitting there that would be extremely powerful, and yet we're not using it. Um, you know, people are going wild trying to get uh, Alzheimer's drugs that have minimal efficacy uh, to be used, and yet we have some of these cancer drugs uh, that would be far more powerful in managing the disease, but the Food and Drug Administration doesn't approve. Listen, if I had cancer, I'd be buying the damn drug. I don't care what the Food and Drug Administration. I know the drugs that work, and I'd be using them on myself. And I have physician friends that would give me the drug at the concentration that I know would work. So why this information is not is present in every major oncology center, I don't know. Yeah. So people need the people need to rise up and say, what the hell is going on with this whole thing? I would tell every cancer patient uh, before they enter a clinical trial, they need to ask the, their oncologist, how is that trial going to target my glucose and glutamine while at the same time protecting the rest of the cells in my body? You give me a precise answer on how this new the thing you're going to give me is going to do that. And if it's going to do that, I'll be very happy to join that clinical trial. If you can't give me a straight answer on that, I'm out of here. Because a lot of these things don't work. These people are dying. You know, we over 1,600 people a day dying uh, from cancer. And, and, they, and this is horrific. And so and these clinical trials, you, they're ongoing now with all the major cancer centers. You go and look and see how many clinical trials there are. And yeah. almost none of them are targeting glucose and glutamine. So the outcome, oh, yeah, there's going to be some survivors. There always is. But, but you know, what's the general outcome for the whole population being treated in that clinical trial? To that point, too, just curious, obviously, from your lens of a researcher who has been in this field for over 30 years, when someone's reading a trial, right, on PubMed, 
there's obviously so many different interests at play. How can you decipher a good study slash trial from one that's not? Are there like three indicators to look at? Obviously, who's sponsoring it is one of them. But how do you navigate, again, truth from untruth? Well, I like to say, um, did the drug have any at all toxic side effects? What was the level of toxic side effect? There should be there should be none minimal at all. And what's the overall survival of the population of patients? Um, you know, re- relative to historic controls. And um, it, it clearly, if you have a, a new a new drug for lung cancer, a new approach for lung cancer, and the and the uh, uh, the patients are surviving. Uh, four years with a high quality of life or longer and with minimal, if any, side effects, then I would say that looks pretty good. I, I'd be really interested in that. Um, but, you know, from the studies they have done uh, where they've looked at uh, 92 drugs from t- 2000 to 2016, interestingly enough, many, most of the drugs showed that it was working against the tumor, but overall survival was increased by two months. Um, I, I don't two months. What are you crazy? I mean, you you want two years, you want five years increase in survival. Now, otherwise, it's just the same stuff over and over again, and a lot of toxicity associated with. It's not always, but but patients are never fully never come jumping out of bed and can't wait to take their pill in the morning for this this new chemo they're taking. Nobody's very few people are excited about that. Uh, most of the stuff is toxic. It's not based on what we understand the real biology of the problem is. And therefore, the outcomes were never going to be uh, what people would have expected them to be. So uh, you got to get over it. This is a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And the therapies that you're using better make sure they're targeting the fermentable fuels. If they're not, you're, you're, it's unlikely you're going to get any, any kind of an outcome that's going to be really, really uh, important. As, and I, yeah. I know that. You know, it's, I don't know how long it's going to take for the field to understand this. Um, they're just going to have to bite the bullet and say, listen, this is a mitochondrial. It's not a genetic disease. Get over it. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. I don't want to talk about any precision medicine unless I'm, unless I'm also targeting glucose and glutamine and putting myself in a state of therapeutic ketosis. All other issues are less important than what I just said. So let's say for a patient who is in that therapeutic state of ketosis, they are taking Fenben, Doxy, whatever off-label drugs to target those pathways, and their last PET scan comes back and it doesn't show anything on the scan, right? We obviously know that they're probably still circulating tumor cells, but nothing shows up on the scan. How long should they continue with their current protocol? You know, that's a good question. Um, as a matter of fact, Pablo, uh, we have guys that that he thought he he was out of the woods when he had uh, the debulking. He did waited three years for the first debulking surgery, which was really incredible uh, because the tumor grew slowly on his diet and then uh, his diet plan. And then he had it debulked and it, the, the doctor uh, said, we think we got it all. Oh, great. Well, he started to drift back into his normal, uh, less stringent kind of a diet. And then all of a sudden we get images that the tumor is starting to grow again. Oh, I put the fear of God in him. So he goes right back onto what he did before and, and now puts the tumor. So the tumor, yeah, you can actually see. I have I have people that could actually watch the size of their tumor grow depending on, on how much glucose was in their blood. There's a direct correlation to how fast your tumor will grow as to how fast your, 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 um, how, what your blood sugar level is in the blood. You can actually see and measure size of tumor. So, but if you have a complete resolution 
you know, what, what does that mean? I can go back on what I was doing before and there's no recurrence. Uh, I don't have the cancer coming back. I think, I, I don't know what to say uh, because we haven't had a large number of people. We only have a few case reports that show this kind of a thing. Um, but you know, it's hard, that question is hard to know because some people feel so so gifted that they survived their stage four cancer uh, doing a particular process. Do they do they really want to fall back on the way they were uh, for the even the uh, 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 a potential of putting them back in the same position, or do they want to stay the course and feel good about themselves um, and knowing that they have control? They are the ones that are in control rather than the tumor in control. And uh, I, I think it's it's an individual thing. Uh, each individual is going to have to deal with that issue for themselves. You're not a fan of metformin, right? I think I had asked you that. Previously. Well, you know, metfor- yeah, metformin doesn't do much. I, I, I don't want to say don't use it. I mean, if you have type 2 diabetes, uh, it'll bring your blood sugar down, but not to the level that will kill tumor cells. You can't, what is you can't. that level? Well, we think it's uh, 55 to 65 milligrams per deciliter in the blood. You know, this is a, oh boy, you get you down there and you have your elevated ketones, two to three millimolar. Um, you're killing tumor cells. Those tumor cells are having a tough time to survive. And then you throw a little drug on top of them, like embendazole, fenbendazole, a little Don on this condition. And man, you're just pounding the hell out of these tumor cells. And your body is, you know, you're getting healthier as while you're doing it, not sicker. And a uh, little hyperbaric oxygen here, that's a health, a health benefit in itself. A lot of athletes use hyperbaric oxygen to get their, to heal themselves. So uh, um, you do everything, you know, it's, it's there. We, we, it's just done in a different context, a different way. So, um, yeah, all this is very, very doable. There should be very easy plans to get this done. Um, the problem is insurance companies aren't behind it either. So yeah. you say, oh, where am I going to get these drugs? And they, as soon as they find a drug that works a little bit, Interestingly enough, they Scarelli the drug. Uh, you know what that means? You know, Martin Scarelli, the w- world's hated, most hated guy, he took the pens and all the drugs he made. His, he just jacked the price up by a thousand percent. You know that yes. guy? The pharmaceutical yep. companies do the same thing all the time. They just don't boast about it. You know, we, we, we found drugs like Lumistine and some of these drugs. They were dirt cheap. As soon as you find out that they have an a, 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 a effect on cancer, and Bendazole, it's the same way. Whoa. They jack, they jack the price up to hundreds of percent higher. I mean, this yeah. is nuts. This is Scarelli the drug. You know, let's let's do that. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just not right. But they do it anyway. You know. So what are you going to do? No insanity. Well, Doctor Seyfried, I could spend hours chatting with you, but I do want to be conscious of your time. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Where can listeners find you? Well, I think we have a lot of YouTube videos, and don't forget, most of my papers are published open access. So if anybody wants to dig into the details of what I've what I'm saying, uh, you know, most of our pages have to put my name into into Google and say publications and then you'll get the publications that are oh, that everybody can get them. If they have access to to Google, you can just download the PDFs um, and read them, read the di- read the data yourself. And then if people feel that, uh, um, you know, they, they can question uh, those who want to support the research can donate to Travis Christofferson's foundation, the, found, the Foundation for Cancer Metabolic uh, Therapies that support our work. So, so we're 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 moving forward, uh, and we'll eventually have this cancer thing uh, under control at some point. 
Wonderful. And I will include all of that in the links in the show notes. And my very last question for you, Dr. Seyfried, is one that I like to ask each person I have on the show. And that is, what does being well and strong mean to you? Well, I, I consider a state of metabolic homeostasis. Um, that's where all the cells uh, and the tissues of our body are working together uh, in a unified whole uh, to, main, to maintain what we would call uh, well-being. You know, I, I, you ask a patient, um, the, the first thing you want to ask the patient is, how do you feel? <laughs> right? I mean, you look like you're quite healthy. You probably feel pretty good, right? You know, so how do you feel? Is, is like, I feel good. Mentally and physically, I feel good. Okay, well, that's uh, well and strong. Um, you know, and, and that's always generally linked to metabolic homeostasis, that, that all the systems in your body are working the way they should work um, uh, without the stress. Love that. Well, Dr. Zafri, thank you again. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for all of the work that you do. And I'm very excited to share this with listeners. You're, you're truly helping so many people. And I'm just continue to be excited about seeing the new results that come out. Yeah, me too. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong. Be strong.